Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Two weeks ago, I believe it was, or was it three weeks ago? I don't know, man. I can't even keep track of the day. Uh, But recently, sometime in the recent future when I was preaching here, uh, we started a series on prayer, and that's what we're going to, we're going to continue on in that vein. We're going to look at uh, our theology of prayer. Now, I've talked about this before, but I really want to drill down deeper, especially on some key points in this subject, because it's crucial for us to understand this. A, because I believe God wants to, uh, he wants to enlist some people for intercession. I, want, I believe the Lord wants to reignite the fires of intercession, not just in Heartland, but we're definitely included, uh, but also across the earth. I believe that we're in a crucial time. I believe that there are forces converging right now that are attempting to get some things off track, and we want to cooperate with heaven so God's pr- purposes will prevail. Now, When I talk like that, uh, that gives you a little window into my theology, and that's what I want to get into this morning. I want to talk about theology. Uh, I've been going through some books lately, uh, a couple of books recently. uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, I've revisited, How Shall We Then Live? How many of you are familiar with that book? Francis Schaeffer, tremendous, brilliant dude. He wore these little... uh, little knicker pants guy. He was from the Alps and he had this little goatee, like <laughs> that kind of goatee. I mean, it was long and he had this long hair and uh, he looked kind of crazy, but he was a brilliant philosopher and theologian. He wrote a number of books and that was, to me, one of his best, uh, How Should We Then Live? And what he does is he traces theological and philosophical thought down through history to anticipate how that manifested at different times in history and how we got to where we are. Uh, it's a fascinating study. I'd really encourage you to check that out. As a matter of fact, I've got it on VHS tape. Yeah, so if you used to have a VCR, I'll loan you my VHS tapes. But it is, a, it is well worth, the, I need to get them on DVD, but it's well worth the viewing and the reading. It's just a brilliant guy. Uh, he greatly influenced a young gal named Nancy Percy. And Nancy Percy has really become one of the primary uh, evangelical female theological voices today, uh, alive today. She is a brilliant woman. She wrote a book called, I got, I got it, my, my son flagged me on her, which led me back to Francis Schaeffer all over again. But Nancy Percy, uh, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body. And she uh, really g- gets into the theological or the philosophical really underpinnings of uh, the, just the culture wars and, you know, when it comes to homosexuality, uh, just the whole question of the gender dynamics and all of those things, she gets into what, what were the philosophies that led us to this point. And uh, she also has a book called What is Truth or, or the, no, Total Truth. She, she was the co-author with uh, Chuck Colson in his book, how Now Shall We Live? He kind of stole uh, Francis Schaeffer's title and kind of edited it a little bit. But really, those are three great books. And if you want to really get into the, what is the background that drove us to where we're at at this hour in human history, those are three great books to get. And all three of them are on Audible. You can listen to them rather than read them. And uh, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, so I want to really drill down on this thing of theology. Now, there's, there's, the, there's a phrase that's been said, ideas have consequences. How many of you agree with that? What you believe matters. Your belief determines your behavior. Or in a more homespun way, your believing determines your behaving. And so what you believe will determine how you act. And so in discipling people, the whole concept of discipleship is that we have to tweak people's belief system if we're to change their behavior. And so Christianity is not just us white knuckling it trying to behave. It's being renewed, being transformed by the renewal of our mind. So our transformation, our behavioral transformation, our life transformation comes directly out of 
are learning things. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We believe different, therefore we behave different. And if we don't deal with that belief component, then we're just going to frustrate ourselves, and your transformation will be short-lived. As soon as you relax, you'll go back on autopilot and start putting out the same behavior you used to, unless you deal with the belief systems. Now, we, we understand that at a basic level, but I'm telling you, that... That principle is so much more deeper. And that's, that's why you know, I brought up those three books. Uh, those books really trace the philosophical development in, in history. And it shows how these philosophers in their white towers you know, are just tinkering with ideas, the ramifications they had in, other, you know, in all, of, all of human history. And so we've got to confront our belief system. What do you really believe? And if ideas have consequences, no ideas have greater consequences than our theological ideas. Because your ideas of God affect everything about you. God, whether you realize it or not, is the ultimate fact in your worldview, in your belief system. God, the way you see him, and even if he is completely absent, an atheist's view of God will affect everything about him. And a theist's view of God will affect everything about him or her. And so we've got to confront our belief systems. And we're talking about this, especially in regards to prayer, looking at how our beliefs about God and theology in general really have a controlling effect and really either fuel or sabotage and undermine our motivation to prayer. So you, how you look at the universe and how you look at God will either motivate you to pray or it'll undermine your motivation and cause you to check out. Even though you know Jesus said when you pray, even though we know that the scripture says, you know, pray without ceasing, we're going to be hard pressed to really motivate ourselves to do so other than out of just empty obedience, but our heart will not be engaged unless we understand why prayer matters. And prayer will only matter if it fits in with an overall theology that makes it necessary. And I'm telling you, the Bible teaches a worldview, a cosmology that makes prayer make sense. But if you don't have that as a part of your theology, you're going to be hard-pressed to really gear up in prayer. There's a reason that there's a, there's a certain theological school of thought that... If you follow that out and you look at churches that really gather around that theological school of thought, you'll recognize that by and large, those churches don't really get behind houses of prayer, this, which is really a, a, a phenomenon in the last 30 years. I mean, it's amazing what God has been doing globally in regards to intercession. And I believe we're on the front end, not the back end of this thing. This is not a trend that we're peaking and then it's going to go down. This thing is going to grow towards the end of the age. And because God's going to give his children uh, uh, an understanding that Prayer is the governing mechanism by which God administrates history. Let me say it again. Prayer is the governing arm of heaven. It's the governing mechanism. It's the mechanism by which God governs and rules over human history. But for me to say that betrays my theology. It shows, it, it reveals my theology. It, it shows my theological point of view. And what I'm talking about is a theology that invests man with a tremendous amount of responsibility and authority. And to the degree that your theology reduces man's part in God's plan is to the degree that you will lack motivation to pray. To the degree that you grow your concept, and we need to define these terms, your concept of God being in control will diminish your concept of man's, the part that man plays in human history. Now, even when I say that, there's, there's bells that go off in some of your head. What do you mean God not in control? 
we really need to, we need to ask ourselves the question, it does God perform his will or does he conform everything to his will? Those are two totally different things. Does God directly perform his will in human history or does he conform everything to his will by delegates? <laughs> now hang with me, okay? Because this is crucial for us to understand when it comes to prayer. What we're really talking about is your cosmology. Now your cosmology is really your estimation or your perception of how the universe works. What is the structure and the nature of the universe? How, what is the system that God set up? That is your cosmology. And your cosmology will either uh, motivate or cripple your prayer life. Your cosmology will cause you to be very engaged or it'll cause you to be disengaged. And I am not saying that we should adopt a cosmology simply because it motivates us. It needs to be based on truth. And if the truth is that I don't need to be engaged, then I don't need to be engaged. I don't want to complicate matters. But we need to root our cosmology in the word of God. And I'm telling you that the enemy has sown seeds, theological seeds, wrong theology that has crippled the church and undermined the motivations of the saints to disengage and simply allow life to happen to them. And while they're down there disengaged, they're wondering why God isn't working. When the Bible tells us God is up in heaven looking for us to work, looking for us to engage with him in this governing mechanism called prayer. Prayer is the avenue by which God's will arrives in your life. This thing is a partnership. And so we need to develop a biblical cosmology. Now, we, we talked a couple weeks ago. We're going we're gonna to really look at four facets of theology when we look at our theology of prayer. But I really want to drill down on this one of cosmology. So the first one is our cosmology, our view of how things work, our view of the, the, the system that God has set up. That is the context in which prayer happens. So if I had a whiteboard up here, I'd draw a big square, and the square is your cosmology. At the top of the square is the second component to what we're we're going to be looking at, and that is our theology, our view of God, and then at the bottom is our anthropology, our view of man, what is man's role in all of this, and then in the middle, we would look at our demonology. There is, an, there is opposition to the will of God in the earth. God has declared certain things will happen, but that doesn't mean that they're going to happen without opposition, and it's going to take human cooperation. And so we're going to look at those four components. Uh, but this morning, what we really want to look at is, again, our cosmology. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach to living people and not just a camera. And Lord, I just thank you for all those who are tuning in. And Lord, I ask God that you'd speak to us. And Lord, that you would tweak our belief system so that it would align with you and what you have created so that things will work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So your cosmology is your conception of the nature and the structure of the universe. And so we have to have a biblical cosmology if we don't because your cosmology is going to determine how much you will be engaged. And there are different cosmological viewpoints theologically. There are people, people have different viewpoints. There is one school of thought. Uh, there is a, usually known as Calvinism or Reformed theology. Uh, and there, there are people who buy into even hyper-Calvinism. Uh, I'm not even going to get into that, but Calvinism really emphasizes emphasizes one primary doctrine, the sovereignty of God. And so that viewpoint talks much about how God is ruling over human history. How many of you believe that? 
Now, everybody's kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to raise my hand because I know how preachers do this. I believe in the sovereignty of God. God is ruling over human history. The problem is how you define that term sovereignty. Because many have adopted a view of sovereignty that gets, a, gets away from the original meaning of the word and has taken on theological implications that the word doesn't really mean. We, let me put it this way. When we uh, apply that word sovereign or sovereignty to a human, we mean one thing. They've taken that word and then they apply it to God and they apply some other meanings to it that, has, that completely redefines the word. And that is what I have a problem with. Sovereignty simply, it, it comes from the word reign, sovereign. It means uh, sovereign in the English language originally uh, was a noun. It was a ruler. He is the sovereign. It was, you know, referring to the king, the sovereign. He was the one who had the rightful rule to reign. Uh, he, so sovereign is directly connected to the concept of a kingdom. Uh, again, we've talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom is a compound word, means king's dominion or his right to rule. It's very intimately associated with the word sovereign. But God's sovereignty does not imply that he directly controls all of human events. If we get into the word, we see a biblical cosmology in which God is not directly controlling, but he is delegating control or, control or rulership or his reign, his sovereign. He's delegating that to individuals who are delegates. They are people who rule on his behalf. Now, this is very important. We get into a biblical cosmology. It, it brings us into not only the earth realm, but into the supernatural realm. And if you look in the supernatural realm, God has delegates. There are those he rules through. And what we need to understand is God's eternal kingdom, God's invisible kingdom, and even his heavenly family, and scripture uses that language, God's eternal family in heaven is a template for us to learn how he interacts and how he rules through his earthly family. And so it's, it's relevant for us to begin to understand how the supernatural realm works. And we need to understand the biblical language is that God, uh, he governs by a council and he operates by delegates, okay? What is a council? A council in the sense of not C-O-U-N-S-E-L, but a council as in C-O-U-N-C-I-L, is that right? Uh, that type of council. But the fact is, his council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, they, he draws them in. He looks to them for counsel. C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Yeah, I got it right. You know what I'm saying. God looks to his, he has a divine counsel to, to whom he looks for counsel. How many of you understand that from scripture? I, I, I'm going to tell I didn't understand that as recently as three to five years ago. When I first began to study this out, it kind of tweaked me out that this has got to be heretical. But the more I studied, so I'm going to lay out some scriptures this morning because if we understand how God operates with his divine counsel, also referred to as the sons of God, how many of you remember in Job chapter one? Remember in the opening of the book, it says the sons of God uh, convened and they, they came before God. God called the sons of God and they convened and the Satan had been roaming throughout the earth and God said, what did you find? And, and he told him and he said, have you considered Job? Remember that weird scenario in the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible? The sons of God were this divine counsel. We see this terminology. There, there's several different uh, phrases that are used for this counsel. We also see in the book of Daniel where Daniel has this vision and he sees thrones, plural, set up and the ancient of days takes his seat on the throne among multiple thrones. 
So that's a picture of the divine counsel. Matter of fact, Psalm 82. Let's read that. Turn to Psalm 82. Let's see if I can pull that up. Uh, and different translations translate it different ways. But Psalms 82 talks about he takes his seat, speaking of God, God takes his seat among the gods. Isn't that strange? My phone is trying to cooperate. I should have brought my physical Bible. Now that I have physical faces, I should have brought a physical Bible. Psalm 82. Look at verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. What in the world is that? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, now it's God speaking, you are gods, comma, sons of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, you will die like you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. What is that speaking of? What an interesting passage. How many of you have ever read that and wondered? Anybody ever read that and wondered what that was about? God has, takes his place in the divine council. We see another passage in 2 Kings, or maybe it's the first king. I wrote it down here. Uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, this is when uh, the prophet Micaiah is called before Ahab and uh, he's, supposed to give a, he's supposed to give him the prophetic directives and Ahab doesn't want this prophet to come. He's called all his false prophets who are telling him all these great things that are gonna happen and uh, the king of Judah says, hey, don't you have a, a, a servant of God, of Jehovah that can prophesy? And he says, yeah, there's Micaiah, but I don't like to hear him because he always prophesies stuff I don't like. And the king of Judah's like, oh, don't say that. He rebukes him and he said, bring him here. And he gets up and he says, yeah, whatever. Any, every, it's all gonna be good, Ahab. It's all gonna be good. And he said, how many times do I have to tell you just say what the Lord is saying? He rebukes him because he can tell he's being sarcastic. And he said, then he gives him the real word of the Lord. He said, I saw, I saw the, uh, it, it's a council picture, a divine council picture that's being referred to in Psalm 82. And he said, that different Elohim step before God, and God says, how are we gonna deceive Ahab? He's, the council members come forward and give different advice, and the Lord said, we'll do this one. And he tells them, you're gonna be enticed through your false prophets, you're gonna be led into battle, and you're gonna, you're gonna be killed. And that's exactly what happened. It's a picture of the divine council. Now, the intertestamental books, as well as some of the more ancient Middle Eastern books, all had threads of this type of theology. Uh, matter of fact, years ago, I read a book uh, called, e I want to say it was Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Phenomenal book. And he, he began to look into ancient writings, and he said, the closer you got to the flood, the more accurate the theology of these ancient civilizations were. You could get, because it was, it was uh, verbal theology that was being passed down, oral tradition that was being passed down, and the closer you got to the age of the flood, they would unearth these, these tablets and these scrolls, and the closer you got, the more accurate their theology, the more it lined up with biblical theology, and the farther you got from there, they began to take on their own theological implications. And so you see even some of these ancient texts have this idea, uh, there's threads of God, the most high God, and that's why scripture refers to God as the most high God, ruling among the gods, now, when I first began to read that, I thought, man, this can't be right. But the word there is Elohim. And I was always taught in Bible school that Elohim was a, a title attributed only to God. But the fact is, in the scriptures, that word Elohim is attributed to several other types of beings. And so when it says God took his seat among the gods, it's he took his seat among the Elohim. 
And then if you look in Psalm chapter 8, when it says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him, you placed him a little lower than the angels we have in Hebrews 2. But in Psalm chapter 8, the original text that the New Testament writer is quoting, in Greek it's translated angels, but in Hebrew it's translated, he made him a little lower than the Elohim, or the sons of God. It's this race if you will, of supernatural beings that were infused with delegated authority to rule over the earth. And that is what Psalm 82 is about. God is rebuking this this divine counsel because some of them rebelled and they weren't executing the justice and the righteousness on the earth that God infused them with authority to do. And so God is calling them into account. He said, I'm gonna judge you. So what do we learn from this Old Testament picture of God's divine family, the sons of God that we just spoke about in in Psalm 82 and in Job chapter 1 and several other passages that God rules by a council? In other words, God is perfectly capable of ruling everything on his own. He doesn't need anybody's input, but God is an empowering leader and likes to have it anyway. He wants your thumbprints on things. He wants you to be engaged in this thing. It's not some disconnected thing where we just say, okay, God, I want your will. And you're not thinking and you're not engaged and your heart isn't engaged in these things. I've often thought, my poor wife. When I first met my wife, God told me she was gonna be my wife. Because I had this hyper-spiritual, I had been such a rebel before that, man, when I surrendered to Jesus, I surrendered. I said, God, whatever you want, you just tell me what you want. But I had disengaged my heart. And so, I mean, I'd literally get up in the morning and I went to two Bible schools that you had to wear a tie every day. And so I'd put my tie on. I'd think, Lord, is that the one you want me to wear? Oh, I'd take it off and I, I didn't feel peace and I'd put on a different tie. <laughs> Seriously, that was crazy. And uh, I think God appreciated the sincerity, but it was very misled. Now that did, you know, that, that made for some... Uh, anxiety in my personal life, but I took that same approach when when looking for someone to marry. And so I had sworn off dating. And, and the fact is the Lord told me he didn't want me dating because I was a messed up kid, okay? So the Lord, he didn't want me to uh, import that into anybody else's life. So he said, you just, you know, hang, hang loose there, buddy, and don't date. And so uh, he told me, I'll bring you your wife. And so when I met my wife, he spoke to me and he said, that's the woman you're going to marry. He said, treat her like she deserves. The problem was because of my theology, I gutted it of all romance. I gutted it of any kind of uh, real relationship to a very large, not all romance, but to a very large degree. It was all about the will of the Lord. Now that isn't real romantic for a woman. The Lord has spoken to me. You are the one I'm to marry. A woman doesn't want to hear that. She wants to hear that you're in love with her and, and all of that, you know. And uh, so my poor wife, uh, hey, I was in love with her and I, I told her that. But uh, I look back and, and look at how my theology really diminished some of that relationship. Because I was in the, under the impression that it was just God giving edicts and I just walk out what he's saying. When in actuality, this is a partnership. And just like we get this picture in this, this divine council meeting in 1 Kings, God calls the council together. Do you think God's smart enough to have figured it out on his own? Absolutely. But he wanted the input of the sons of God, these heavenly sons of God. He's wanting the input of them and he's wanting some engagement. And what do you guys think? I think that's pretty cool that God is that empowering and and he wants your thumbprints on what you create with him because you are co-laboring, co-laboring, you're collaborating with God and he wants to know what you think on matters. And so there's this divine counsel thing that takes place. And we also see within the divine counsel there are those who failed, those who rebelled. So God's will isn't always done directly, even indirectly. God has to conform it. It isn't always performed. 
God has to come in and rescue what he intended to happen doesn't happen because he delegates to fallen beings and not just fallen human beings. Matter of fact, there's a scripture in the book of Job, I want to say it's chapter 14, that tells us that God, that even angels fail. I'm not talking about the one-time failure of those who rebelled, but angels don't do everything perfect, that they can make mistakes. Who knew that touched by an angel had it right? That Monica, when she messed up, that was pretty good theology. That the angels are learning. That the spirit, Hebrews chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter two says that principalities and powers in the heavenly realms are watching the church and through the church learning about the nature of God. They're learning about God through us. They're, they're on a, a trajectory to grow themselves. The good angels and the bad ones, they're all learning. The good angels are looking at us and thinking, this is amazing. Look at how God operates through them. This is, this is awesome. And the demons are having, God's putting them, taking them by the nap of the back, said, watch this. And he forces them to watch the church in your face with amazing grace. And he makes them watch it, you know. And uh, they're learning of the things of God. So it's very important for us to understand because this, this picture of God's heavenly family is a template for us to understand how he works with his earthly family. God doesn't directly perform his will and if he does, it's not very often because like any monarch, any king, God has layers of delegated authority, angels, and other creatures that are fulfilling his purposes. And he has invited us into that thing. And how did he do it? He invited us into his kingdom. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son by his son, the son of God, the unique son of God, scripture. The word that we translate, you know, God's only begotten son in John three sixteen. the Greek is monogenes. Genes, you know, genetics, mono only. His, the, his only unique son. It's talking about he is unique over and above all the other sons of God. We see in Job the sons of God. Psalm 82, the sons of God. Matter of fact, we see in Genesis, you wanna, you wanna really get crazy? And the Bible's a weird book, okay? Genesis talks about when the sons of God came in and had relations with the daughters of men producing the giants of old. What is that? That is part of the great rebellion that God is addressing in Psalm 82. Now, some people want to translate that as, well, those were the sons of Seth that procreated with the daughters of Cain, or of Abel, rather. And so they were, I mean, Cain. And so, that you know, the good, the good guy, the, the righteous son, his, their, their progeny hooked up with the bad guy, the sinful one, and they, that's not what it's saying. They it's talking about these Elohim coming and having relations with the daughters of men. And these were the giants of old, this homogenized, uh, these, these beings that were partly human and partly not. And God rebuked. So check this out, okay? And so the way in which the human race was perverted was not just through the fall of Genesis 2, but it was also the corruption of Genesis around uh, chapter 11. And it says that, so God then delegated, and at Babel, he delegated the nations to the sons of God, according to the numbers of the sons of God. So there's these different Elohim that are over the nations. So what is God's answer to turn around this corruption? He's gonna send his only begotten son, into the womb of a virgin and start his own brand new race of men, the God-men, the Christian, the, the Christ-bearers. So much so that Paul rebukes the Corinthians. He said, you guys are acting like mere men. He rebukes them because they're acting human. Because we are partakers of the divine nature. And we have been brought into the family of God. We are now sons of God. 
to those who believe him, to those who trust in his name, he has given the right to be called the sons of God. And just like any monarch, the way a kingdom operates is it's by it's, it's a monarchy, it's a royal family that is infused with authority and there are, that he rules through his royal family. That's how a king operates and that's how God operates. God operates by a divine counsel in heaven and they're imperfect beings who make mistakes according to the word. Let me give you that verse out of Job. It's, I think it's important for you to see this. Job verse 4, 17 uh, in 18, it says, and his angels he charges with error. Job chapter four. So there are angels that, they're, they're, there's error that happens even among his angels because we think of the a cosmology that God is, God performs his will, God is doing, doing all these things and God's will is always done. But that begs the question, then why would he Tell us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why do we even waste our breath asking God for his will to be done if his will is already done anyway? Because his will is not always done. That's why we have this concept called sin. Literally, to miss the mark. It misses the mark of God's will, of God's glory. It falls short of what God intended. And so God comes in and conforms. That's the language of Ephesians chapter one. He conforms all things to the purpose of his will. He doesn't perform them, he conforms them. He comes in and he, after the fact, he redeems his, his intentions and he continues to move them towards his will. And he does it through you and I. Because just as God has a divine family, the sons of God in heaven, and a council that he, he wants to hear their input. He doesn't need it. God is all-knowing. But God is growing his sons up because he's a good father. He does that with his family in heaven, and he does that with his family on earth. How is God governing the earth? Psalm chapter 8 very clearly says that he put us a little lower than the Elohim and put everything on earth under our feet. So this realm of the earth has been delegated to man. That's why when you go back to Genesis chapter one, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right out of the gate, he starts this whole thing of revelation with that statement. He creates two realms, the heavens and the earth. That's where he starts. I've heard people teach, and I may have done so myself, I regret, that the heavens are eternal and the earth is not. So the heavens are more real than the earth because the heavens are eternal. And they're, they're, you know, they weren't, they're uncreated. But the fact is God created the heavens and the earth simultaneously. Why? Why does he mention them in the same breath? Why did he create them at the same time? Because God intended that the heavens and the earth be intimately connected. Their destinies are intertwined. And his heavenly family and his earthly family, our destinies are intimately intertwined. And we're, we are to be, we alone as human beings are the only ones with the equipment to engage both realms. We have a body so we can engage the earthly realm, but we have a spirit so we can engage the spiritual realm. And we are the bridge, the connection between the two. The two realms that in God's plan, it, he never intended that they be severed. And he's bringing them back together and you and I are the agency of that reconnection. And we're to pray, God, Thy kingdom come, your dominion show up on earth and your will be done as it is in heaven. Let it be done on earth. Let there be a flow between the two. Let there be an agreement, a, uh, an integration. Let there be a, a, a mirroring on earth of what's going on in heaven. That is what prayer is supposed to be. But you and I need to engage in that because God's will is not always done on earth because of the way God set it up. He entrusted 
the rulership of the earth to less than perfect beings. He gave them a free will and they haven't learned everything yet. And so there's error and there is sin. And so God is, God releases his will through the word of the Lord, through the written word, through the prophetic word, through intimacy with his saints. That, and so God releases his will. God also releases his will through uh, people who don't know him that also serve his purposes. There are, there are unbelievers that have been appointed in positions of authority that are carrying out the purposes of God for the human race. I've been in the book of Daniel lately again. I tell you what, man, it, it is the amazing thing how God, these rank pagans, and God said, I gave you, the, the terminology, I gave you the kingdom. He gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, the right to rule. He invested him with authority. Then it goes on, he, he's, there's a prophecy of uh, Alexander the Great coming on the horizon, and it's undeniable. If you read the, the prophecies of, of Daniel, these, you know, the, the goat that's gonna come and shatter the other goat, that's undeniably uh, Alexander the Great. And he said, I gave him the kingdom. God gave him the right to rule. The guy was a rank pagan, but there were certain things God wanted to accomplish in human history, and he bestowed authority on a guy that would get it done. And then he would answer for any cruelty he used to get there. So God is delegating authority and he's conforming his will. He's not performing it directly. He, conform, he delegates it through his, his, his divine counsel, his sons, his family. And then he, he's always conforming it. He's, his will is being done through his saints. But there is also this other piece of the fallen agents and there is opposition to God's will. And that is why Paul pulls in in Ephesians chapter six, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. There are, there are beings that are opposing God's will and they have set themselves to see God's will not be done. And so you and I are engaged in a battle. We play a key role. You and I need to be engaged and in, 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 involved in this thing. We need to be, uh, our heart needs to be engaged. We're crying out, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We've talked about this before. That we could really reduce the concept of prayer to one phrase. Divine intervention only by human invitation. Because God will not violate the system he himself set up. It's not that he can't. God could do anything he wanted. It's that he won't. God has set up a system by which he delegated the earth to man. And if we want his intervention, that's why God says, I'm, I was looking for an intercessor. God said, I'm looking for someone to invite me to in, intervene here. If someone would just invite me, I would come. And so we need, we need to understand that that authority he's invested us with, we invite him. We're saying, God, come. Lord, we want your will done. And we're exercising. It's not merely an invitation. It's also a proclamation. We are exercising our God-given authority to declare over our sphere of influence. We declare this as territory of King Jesus. God's kingdom come. God's will be done. And we need to understand the heavy weight of authority that has been invested in us. The fact is, your words matter. What you say is either the marching orders for the angelic or the permission slips for the demonic. It just depends on who you're in agreement with. Man did not lose his authority in the fall. It's manipulated now by darkness, but he still retains that authority. And we have not only been redeemed and have back all of our authority, but it's been, we have a greater authority than we had in the created order because now we are the righteous sons of God, partakers of the divine nature. And therefore, our words carry weight in the earth. Psalm 103 is clear. It says, praise him, O you angels, you who obey the voice of his word. 
It's an interesting way to say it. It it doesn't say you who obey the word of the Lord, you who obey what God says. It doesn't say that. It says you who obey the voice of his word. It's God's word delegated through a human voice because God has put the earth under man's feet. And so as we pray and we cry out, that gives the angels the marching orders. They have, they have the legal authority to begin to enter in because human authority has invited and begun to declare. They've exercised their authority over the affairs of men. But conversely, that same authority, which is an awesome thing delegated to us, that, that really issues marching orders to the angelic, also can be utilized as permission slips for the demonic. So a few years ago, I was in my office on a Friday, and I just, I just been feeling this agitation for days, and just feeling this weight and this agitation, and I was all alone here at the church, and all of a sudden, it just hit me, and I thought, this is witchcraft. And as soon as that thought came in my mind, I saw a quick picture of a gentleman across town kneeling in his living room at night, praying. He thought praying for me, but he was praying against me. This is a believer. And I saw him just crying out, praying that my mind would be changed because he believed certain things that I needed to do. And he was part of the church and he had told people that Pastor Dave won't take my counsel. And he was, he was praying his will over my life. And so I just called him and I said, hey, do you got time? I need to talk to you. He said, sure. Came in and sat down and I said, hey, this is, this is what the Lord showed me this morning. And he just looked at me and I began to explain because what the Lord told me in, in that day, he said, he said, Dave, what you need to understand is that the enemy simply traffics on the scaffolding that I built for my kingdom. The enemy doesn't have his own uh, mechanism. Witchcraft is simply counterfeit intercession. Intercession is me hearing the word of the Lord, uh, applying my life to the word of the Lord through my actions, and crying out the word of the Lord back to God and making declarations. There's, there's There's a point at which our our petition becomes declaration. And we begin to declare the word of the Lord over our situation. And the angels will pick that up and begin to do battle and build that prophetic future that we're declaring. The enemy will use that same principle and he will use the complaints of the saints. Just as God inhabits the praises of his people, there are entities that want to inhabit your complaints. They will create an atmosphere create momentum around your negativity that creates an atmosphere that can begin to plague the mind of others and infuse the environment with negativity and defeatism and, and, and just pull all the hope out of the air. And you don't even realize that what you're doing is you're using your God-given authority to actually fuel the agenda of hell. That is why scripture takes so seriously the complaining of the children of Israel. They were refused to enter into the promised land because of their complaining. We've got to be so careful because we think we're just having a bad day and just saying things when in actuality, the enemy is using those little breadcrumbs of negativity for us to buy into his agenda and to begin to reinforce his agenda, begin to declare his agenda, and actually begin to be cohorts in creating his agenda manifesting on the earth. And so what happens is, is when people, people have their own agenda or the enemy's agenda, and they begin to pray things contrary to God's will, the enemy can, when those words are spoken, because of our invested authority, they can then use them as permission slips to begin to carry those things out. And I saw this guy praying, and he, so I asked him, I, I told him about that, and he just looked at me, and I said, what I'm saying is, and I began to explain how this works, and he put his hand up, he said, you need to understand, I understand, I know much more about this than you realize, which freaked me out. And I told him, I said, listen, what I'm saying to you is if you don't repent, I said, I expect to get hit from the front because we're in a battle. I don't expect to get shot from the back. 
And I said, if you don't repent, I'm telling you, you won't be able to ever step feet on this property again. We're not going to have that kind of behavior here. He wasn't denying he was doing it. He just was bold about it. At which point he began to weep and he said, please pray for me. It was the weirdest thing. And within a few weeks, he was gone. But it's this thing of us discerning We discern the will of the Lord and we pray the will of the Lord. But if we pray our own agenda, when in Galatians where Paul says that witchcraft is a work of the flesh, see, we think of witchcraft as some spiritual thing that we're, you know, you know, we're we're mixing up little toads and, you know, rotten eggs in a cauldron. It's not a spiritual thing. It starts out as a, a work of the flesh our own stubborn agenda, and then we take the next step as we begin to release that into the spiritual realm because we want things to turn out the way we want them to, and if we're not careful, we can participate with the enemy. What I'm telling you is your words matter. You have been given tremendous authority, and God, as a father, wants to include his family in ruling his kingdom, and he has delegated authority to you. He wants your input He wants to know what you think as well. And God also delegates it to you and he doesn't rescind it just because you make bad decisions. And that needs to give us the fear of the Lord. That needs to sober us up that God, I just, I want to know your mind. Purify my heart. And I want to engage heaven I want to be the vehicle through which heaven begins to land on earth. I don't want to be the avenue through which the enemy can begin to move. And in this hour of quarantine where you're around your family a lot, watch your mouth. Seriously. Because we can, we can literally unleash hell on people, not so much by what we say, but by how we say it, the spirit behind it. And we just got to be careful. Amen? That, that's kind of a bummer place to land. Um, Let's let's land here. But you can also release heaven. It's a glorious thing. So release heaven on your family. Let's go ahead and stand. A biblical cosmology makes room for what the scripture tells us, that God operates by layers of authority. He delegates it to them, and then he corrects them after the fact. He doesn't simply control everything. God doesn't control everything. He's in charge of everything and he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The question is, will you be a part of it? Which end of that process will you be on? Are you part of the opposition consciously, unconsciously, or are you part of the fueling what heaven's doing consciously or unconsciously? Let's be conscious about this thing. Let's hear the word of the Lord. God, what do you want to do? And just begin to declare. You look at, as you survey things, what would be God's will? What do we know about the nature of God? Begin to declare that over your home. Begin to declare that over your city, over our nation, over the nations of the earth. Amen? Father, I just pray, God, for each of these today. Lord, that you would instruct us. Lord, I ask that you would take what we've talked about and and teach us in a deeper way, Lord. And Lord, those that are concerned that their pastor is getting into heresy, I pray that you'd minister to their hearts and help them to see me before they come to any bad conclusions. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.